0: Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. This is God's word. Amen. I have a question. It's funny already. Who laughed? (laughs) I know, I know. It's the family behind me. I've actually worn that sweater over that shirt before. And someone pointed it out to me. They are like, there's like a mini version of you, like right behind you. <laughs> My question today is uh, a couple of things, just for you to ponder as we go through a, a, a section in the Sermon on the Mount on giving to the needy and on generosity. One is, do you ever find yourself living or dying by other people's approval? Or... Do you find yourself being destroyed, dependent on what other people think about you? Do you find yourself living your life to satisfy some of those needs? Do you ever wish that you could be free from that? And just think really deeply about that, to be free from what other people think about you, to be the truest version of yourself that God intended for you to be. To be able to pour into other people's lives, to relate to other people, to live your life, your calling, your purpose, your connection with the greater story that God is weaving all around you and in you without being destroyed or crippled by people pleasing. If that's the case, I think the verses in front of us are for you and me. If you've been, uh, if you're visiting today, we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven, uh, for the past few months, we're gonna be in it for the next few months until May, so September all the way into May. We've been calling it the Good Life Series, where we have been looking at Jesus' description of the actual good life. When the kingdom of God comes upon his people in the world, around us, we get a taste of what the good life is. And so far, we've been looking at what the good life looks like in community, uh, in the way that we relate to one another and how it changes our relationships. And now, in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, we're turning the corner and we're looking at the kingdom of God, the good life in solitude. So we're looking at it in relationships. Now we're looking at it in solitude. Now, there's going to be a lot of overlap as we go through these next two chapters. You're going to see a lot of speak about community and relationships and other people. There's a lot of overlap through all of these chapters, but it does seem like, at least in many places, that Jesus is turning this corner and he's beginning to emphasize what I'd like to call the interior life of the Christian, the inner life. Caring for ourselves spiritually. We spoke a lot about caring for ourselves emotionally. Now we're talking about caring for ourselves spiritually. What is God's concern with our interior life? Of course, that's gonna have a lot of implications for the way that we do community and the way we uh, go about marriages and relate to our friends and to our enemies and as a church and to the community of Santa Barbara. But it starts right here. And Jesus does this in, uh, in, in chapter 6, verse 1, by making a bold statement that he's going to explain as the series goes on. He says in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There's a couple things in there that I want to pull out for a second. One, he's speaking about the practice of righteousness. It's not just an interior life. Our heart is connected to our bodies. It's all connected. We live what we believe. The second thing is, there is a reward. At least that's an implication. That's what Jesus is implying. There is a, a, a reward to the lifestyle of this generosity, specifically this secret generosity, which we'll talk about in a bit. But Jesus goes on, and he's going to go on from this point to expound and illustrate that one verse through three different practices. He's going to speak about fasting, he's going to speak about praying, and he's going to be speaking about what we might call almsgiving or giving to the poor, giving to those who are needy. He's taking three spiritual disciplines, three uh, Christian practices and using them to illustrate verse one. Don't do these things in order to be seen by other people, for then you will lose your reward. In there lies that implication that I want our our minds to be fastened on. Not just the negative. Don't do this, because you'll lose the reward. But rather, there's a reward for a certain way of life. And it's that last one that we're speaking about today, what we might call almsgiving or giving to the needy. And this carries a few assumptions for us, right? Jesus doesn't say if you give to the needy. He says when you do. He's assuming that a person who follows him is going to be uh, regularly practicing generosity in this way, that we are generous with our belongings. We're generous with our lives, Obviously, this includes our finances, but it doesn't just include finances, it includes our time, it includes our resources, it includes our ambitions, it includes our families. Generosity really is deep-seated in this this concept that we see all the way at the beginning of the Bible that we like to call maybe stewardship. Stewardship is what generosity is grounded in. This starts really all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Where God creates man and woman, Adam and Eve, and it says in verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over it. Those words subdue and dominion, at least in our contemporary language, seem really harsh and abusive, but the the original Hebrew intent was a matter of keeping and preserving and cultivating and working that 's the idea here stewardship God is, in a sense, from the very beginning of time. When he created uh, all that we see and he created humanity, put humanity in the Garden of Eden, which was the beginning of his expanding kingdom, and he says to Adam and Eve, here is my stuff, I want you to enjoy it, and I want you to cultivate it, and I want you to take care of it, and I want you to spread it. That's where stewardship comes from. Again, God's kingdom given to us for us to cultivate and to participate in. Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. That's where this sense of stewardship comes from. So when we get all the way into the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, we take that concept in Genesis which is broad, everything, everything, and it starts to become more focused on individual people's lives. We get that sense in the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25. It will be like a man going on a journey. Now he's speaking about the kingdom of God. It's like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them, there's a, another key word, entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now he's speaking about talents, which is finances, but he's not just speaking about money here. He's, he's just using this as an analogy of everything, everything that we've been given by God. And we see later in the story, it's a long one, I won't belabor it here, but the story goes that there's three different types of uh, people that have been entrusted with God's uh, Uh, possessions, and one of them uses it, he invests it, another invests it in a different way, and the third one squanders it. I believe the story goes he buries the talents in the ground because he was scared of his master. And in Matthew twenty-five nineteen through 21, it says, After a long time, this is the, to the first servant, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. These are the types of things that come up when we are faced with God entrusting to us things that belong to him. And what belongs to God? Well, the psalmist said that all things under heaven and on earth belong to him. All the cattle on a thousand hills, even our very life and breath. So stewardship then is a really big issue. Some of us think only in terms of finances, but it's, it's everything that you have from your life's breath to your very salvation. And yes, everything in between. Everything we have belongs to God and it's given to us for us to enjoy. But it's also given for us to take care of and to cultivate in such a way as to be a blessing to others. You have been blessed by God so that you can be a blessing. You've been brought into the kingdom of God to ride shotgun and to spread some of the joy of that abundant life that you've experienced to other people. It's a big calling. Part of the way our stewardship is expressed as Christians, according to the Bible, is through generosity. And we see that coming up in chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. Generosity really just means a readiness to give, an exuberance, a desire to give to people. And again, this could mean anything. I love this story. Uh, I believe it's in the, uh, Samuel where Hannah, who is gifted a child by God, turns around and gives her child back to God. It says, I dedicate this. It's a baby, the first b- baby dedication in the history of mankind, maybe. Dedicates Samuel to God and, says, I, and prays over him, saying, you've given this gift to me. I want to give it back to you. And I pray that it would be used by you for your glory and that he would serve you all the days of his life. And he does. We see that in little ways when parents come up on the stage and they ask you know, for prayer and they have their little baby. They're, they want the, the body of Christ to agree in prayer and they want to uh, voice publicly that this child, yes, is mine, but it's God's. And he's just given us stewardship over his kids. Pray for us that we would do a great job in raising them. Stewardship. We see it in things like time and resources and gifts all over the New Testament. Uh, for example, in Acts chapter four, verse 34 through 36, Joseph, his belongings. We see a, an example where Joseph, as there's a revival hitting after the day of Pentecost, he's that guy that brings his plot of land, lays it at the, or the title deed, not the plot of land. He'd have to like lift his house. or I don't know how that would work. But he brings his title deed to the apostles, lays it at their feet to contribute to the needs of the saints. It's not to say you should all sell your house today, but rather generosity flowing out of a particular person. We also see it with hospitality. I can't help but think of Priscilla and Aquila in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, 1 through 3, Romans 16, uh, verse 4. We often think of Paul, the mighty apostle, spreading the gospel, but how about Priscilla and Aquila who housed him, fed him, took care of his needs? Gift of hospitality. Their resources. Uh, there's the lady Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 13 through 15. Here we see generosity with her connections, it seems like. Her gifts with social connections. Lydia is a, a powerful entrepreneur. She works with purple fabrics and dyes, specifically out of the city of uh, Theatira. And she is one of the first converts, I believe, in Philippi. We see that she's praying on a river with a few other people. Paul walks over, ministers the gospel, they pray. And we don't know this from the immediate context, but a few years later, the book of Philippians is written to a bustling, fledgling church. Do you think that it had anything to do with Lydia, upon being converted, using her connections in culture? Perhaps out of that, the church was stirred. We see people using their influence, powerful influence. Nicodemus comes to mind. He's the guy in John chapter three, verse one, who was the, uh, as it says, the leader of the, uh, the Pharisees. He was uh, the leader, uh, leader of the Pharisees. He comes in the middle of the night, uh, because he's embarrassed, perhaps, to talk to Jesus, and that's where Jesus tells him, hey, despite all of your learning, you need to be born again by the Holy Spirit. I don't care where you went to seminary or how many books you read. You need to be born from above. And that's where he's like, oh, how do, how, what do you mean born again? How am I supposed to that? I was already born once and he's, he, he doesn't get it. But as the gospel of John carries out, we see in chapter seven, verse 50, that Nicodemus is the one when Jesus is on trial out of all of those people who are shouting for his crucifixion who's defending Jesus. It's a little step out. Not a lot of success in it, but he's stepping out. Then, when Jesus is crucified, in chapter 19, verse 39, guess who shows up at his tomb with 50 pounds of myrrh and aloe as an act of worship for his burial? It was Nicodemus. Powerful influence. There are a lot of ways that we can be generous with our time and resources and our gifts. Generosity is a readiness or a liberality in giving course, even though it doesn't only speak to our finances, it certainly does include them. Now listen, you might feel uncomfortable hearing any church speak about money, and I, you, know, you might be asking yourself, oh great, again, why does the church always bring this up so much? Why are they always talking about finances and money? And I get that. I understand. I was raised since the day I was born, actually for the first 16 years of my life, in a church that emphasized the prosperity th- uh, gospel, if you can even call it a gospel, where a guy on the stage with two Bentleys and a bespoke handmade Italian suit would tell us week after week after week that we were supposed to give to the church for God to be pleased with us. We would be blessed financially if we gave to fund his uh, extravagant lifestyle, even though he didn't say that. So I, you know, I left that in my late teen years, wounded and disillusioned and disgusted. When I came back, when I was actually born again as a nineteen or twenty-year-old, I examined some of the scriptures to see what Jesus had to say about them. And even though, for most of my life, I saw the twisting and the distortions and the abuse of the word of God, I had to re-examine Jesus' own words and I was shocked to find that he spoke about it. He didn't speak about it in the same way that those hucksters did to me. He wasn't pulling shenanigans, but he was certainly concerned with where disciples spent their money. You might have to ask yourself, why does Jesus care? Money and possessions are referenced 800 times in the Bible. 11 out of 39 of Jesus' parables are about money or possessions. One out of every seven verses in the Gospel of Luke is about money. So I get it. There have been abuses. There's been some weirdness. Some churches talk about it too much. I personally feel weird about it, which is why I haven't spoken about money from the pulpit since November in 2013. But I see Jesus talking about it more than anything else except for the kingdom of God. And it provokes me to ask why. In Matthew chapter six, verse 21, he tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I have to wonder, not about you, I'm talking about me. When I look at my Amazon account and my receipts and my bank statements, I can get a pretty good idea of the things in life that I'm passionate about. And it's easy for me to tell you that I'm a, a Christ follower. It's easy for me to tell you that Jesus is all sufficient for my needs and that he's my number one and Jesus is my homeboy and all of the stuff that we say about him and I'm passionate about him, and I'm worshiping him, and he's the most important thing, and I love him, and he's uh, all-encompassing, but my money will tell you what is the truth. And you will see what my true appetites and cravings are when you look at my receipts. It seems like Jesus already knew that. So I understand this is an uncomfortable topic, and I get that, and if you're weirded out by it, come, you know, come back next week. We'll be talking about prayer, Or, you know, after that section of the series where we're talking about fasting. much easier topics, perhaps, than money. Um, But now, uh, despite my discomfort and perhaps yours, I'm bound by what Jesus speaks about. If he spoke about it, I've got to at least touch upon it. uh, And I'm glad to do so. Jesus, after all, is interested in the whole person. And it's as I said last week, when I said, hey, let's try something crazy. Let's do everything that Jesus told us to do. Let's just see what happens over the next few months. And we were like, yeah, let's do it. What would Jesus do? <laughs> but you're gonna see that he says, some, he says some things. And it's gonna stop you and at least make you think. And that's Okay. It's okay to be stopped by the force of difficult verses to think, we should think about our faith. We should think about the words of Jesus. But the moment you're persuaded that what Jesus is saying is right, we should stop thinking about it and do it, knowing that our Messiah has our best interests in mind for his glory and the purpose of his mission in the world. So that brings us to finances and generosity and stewardship. This one is fairly simple. From the Old Testament, we see an example of the practices of the people of God taking the form of a couple things, tithe and offering. Tithe comes from the Hebrew word meaning a 10th part, meaning the Old Testament believers would practice Uh, something where they would bring tithes. That means they would bring the first 10% of their income as the first fruits. That means before their bills, before uh, they spent uh, money on uh, the fatted calf, before they spent uh, income on uh, their needs or even their wants or enjoyments, the first thing the Israelites did was they sectioned off uh, a section of their income as an act of worship to the Lord. And this was their way of saying, everything, 100% of what I have right now is actually the Lord's. He's given it to me, and so as an act of honor and worship, I am giving my first fruits before anything else to him. There are actually several tithes in the Old Testament, not just one. There was the uh, cattle tithe, there was the Levitical tithe, there was a priestly tithe, there was a festival tithe, there was a charity tithe. There were at least five or six different tithes that in a given year might have added up to anywhere between 20 and 30% of a Jewish person's income. And that was their first fruits. And they would bring that to the Lord, to the temple, and they would say, to you all that I have has come and so I give the first fruits of all that I have to you. I trust you, I worship you, I honor you. Now in general, the tithe refers to the first tenth of a person's income belonging to God. And we see the regular practice of that, the giving, still in the New Testament in places like First Corinthians 16, verse two. That this is the way of the disciple. But listen to this. Tithing is still not generosity. That's why you never see in the Bible people giving their tithe to God. You see the Bible saying, bring your tithe into the storehouses, for example. It belongs to God. What you see as an act of generosity is what the New Testament refers to as an offering. That is over and beyond the tithe. Here's an example of that in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, For in a severe test of affliction, this church in Macedonia, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." Listen to that. There's the needy right there. Uh, specifically, the relief of the saints, Paul is speaking about the, uh, a church group in Jerusalem that's poor, they can't, uh, they can't even feed themselves, and he's speaking to a church in Macedonia who out of even their, uh, uh, their extreme poverty overflowed with generosity to meet the needs of impoverished saints in Jerusalem. And then he says this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so that's an example of generosity as it pertains to finances. Where Paul looks at a group of believers that are taking care of other poor people. Now this could be poor people in the community, the homeless, it could be poor people uh, that aren't homeless in the community, like the, you know, a single mom that just needs some groceries. It could be poor people in the church. In fact, we see that example in the scriptures. For example, in Galatians, Paul says, do good to everybody, especially to those of the household of the faith. At the end of Romans, I think it's in, uh, at the end of Romans chapter 12, Paul says, we are to meet the needs of the saints. That means we're to take care of each other. That means in a group like this, in a building like this, there are people who don't have enough. We might not be dressed in rags. We might actually be coming to Sunday in our Sunday's best. Maybe even to give off a, a veneer of respectability. But we, some of you are going home and you're hungry. Some of you are going home and you, you don't know if you're going to be able to pay the bills. Kids need clothes, water bill needs to be paid things like that. And nobody knows. You come into a building with 600 people, your needs are unmet because they're unknown. And this is exactly the type of thing that that addresses. Of course, you have to be known, and you have to know others, which is why fellowship and community is so important. But this is This is the generosity. We kind of were looking at a broad view of stewardship and generosity. Well, Jesus right here is honing in on that, giving to those who are in need. This is what's called almsgiving in some of your translations. And it starts all the way back in Leviticus chapter 19, verse nine through 10. Moses says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Okay, so to make this Makes sense for us because few of us, I think, are in the agricultural business. Um, If you are, that is awesome. Let me know if you uh, do avocados or anything like that. (laughs) Kale. It's super big right now, I hear. This is just income. People who are making a living. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Don't use all that you earn and make for yourselves. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Another word for sojourner that I think will make a lot more sense for us is perhaps an immigrant. You shall leave a little off the top of what you have made for the poor and for the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. We see that actually happening in the book of Ruth. Ruth is awesome. You should read it. It's four chapters, better than the notebook, (laughs) laced with the gospel. (laughs) Ruth was a widow, so by definition, she was poor. It says, when she rose to glean in the fields, her rich employer, Boaz, who would later become her husband, it's awesome instructed his young men, saying, let her glean, see that, even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out uh, some from the bundles for her, and leave it to her for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So he's obeying Leviticus right now. Boaz, who's making a living, he has every right to do so, is leaving, uh, leaving a little extra for the poor. But for Ruth, he actually goes a little over and beyond. He actually tells his employees, uh, beyond just her grabbing what's left over, why don't you take some of your sheaves and just kind of like drop them in front of her, just like walk in front of her and let her, let her grab some, some stuff. Obviously, he kind of likes her, I think, but... That's an example of a community watching out for their own poor. What would this look like in the New Testament age? Let's just dream a little bit. I don't think we have to go too far into the New Testament to figure that out. We look at Acts chapter two, Acts chapter four, uh, specifically Acts chapter two verse, um, I'll just read it. If I don't read the text for myself, I end up paraphrasing because I get so excited. But uh, Acts chapter two verse 45 And they were, this is right after a great revival in the land where the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. Here's one of the things that was happening. They, the church, people in the church were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Chapter 4, verse 32, look at that one. A couple chapters later. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And great power, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need, thus Joseph. And there's that example I shared earlier. this is not a prescription to everybody in the building to sell their home and be homeless. It is a description of what happens when the gospel of the resurrected Jesus Christ is grasped by a heart that has been made free by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the person has examined what God has given to them, they do weird stuff like this. They do radical things like let go of their possessions. They stop thinking of the things that are rightfully theirs as actually theirs. And it all, all, all of a sudden becomes a kingdom resource. My stuff belongs to God. Some of my stuff might help some of you. Vice versa. I mean with each other. I'm not saying I need your stuff. <laughs> I mean as a community. This is not socialism. This isn't a third party coming in and taking your stuff. It is a person by his own willpower saying, my stuff is not my own. I'm not even my own. I've been bought by a price. And that person willfully desiring to meet the needs of people who are needing, that is more than a government program. That is the power of Jesus Christ. But you can imagine what would happen if we all lived like that. And Jesus, in his characteristic tenacity, likes to go just a step further. A couple jabs along the way. And he says in verse 2 When you do give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Funny thing about the first century. People actually did this. They were called benefactors, And when they had an opportunity, there were times where the poor would be, uh, you know, it was acts of benevolence, official acts of benevolence. The rich in the community would often wear robes and blow trumpets and make a big scene in front of everybody so that all the town could see how generous that they were. The poor would receive this gift, and who wouldn't, uh, you know, what... uh, impoverished person doesn't want a gift. So they would be, you know, stoked, I imagine, and the rich person would feel even more uh, stoked in their self-esteem and in their good works. Jesus is saying that is the deepest reward you will ever get. You wanted a high five, you wanted a slap on the back, well, there you got it. Move on. He goes even farther to label them hypocrites. Now, we're very familiar with that term. I don't think a single person in here doesn't know exactly what the word hypocrites mean. It came from this. The Palestine of Jesus' day had a bunch of different fine theaters for acting, obviously. And he was certainly familiar with them. Uh, a few miles from his, his childhood home in Nazareth uh, was a city by the name of Sepphoris. Not to be confused with Sephora and Paseo Nuevo. This is Sephoris. <laughs> a few miles from Nazareth. This one was built while Jesus was a kid. He was a young man. It might even have been possible that he and his father Joseph would have been workmen in uh, the construction of Sephorus the Theater. He was very familiar with everything that happened here. Actors in the classical Greek arena, in the stage were often commonly referred to as hypocrites. But it didn't mean what we mean it today. It was actually a good thing. It wasn't meant derogatorily. It was to refer to those who would perform an act on stage. In fact, they were getting into a character. They were changing their character. We might think of uh, things like method acting today. Heath Ledger as Batman, uh, Nicolas Cage, Daniel Day-Lewis as Abraham Lincoln, stepping into a character that's not their own. This is what the Greek theater did, and they were called hypocrites, Jesus, however, was, according to history, the first person to bring the theater term into the moral vocabulary of the Western world to refer to something else. People who act a certain way in order to deceive. We know full well what a hypocrite is. Someone who believes one thing, and does another, someone who does one thing from a place of deceit, whose actions do not match their motivations. So it's just not, big surprise, it's just not kingdom-minded enough to Jesus to just do acts of righteousness. The heart must be aligned with it. The emotions must be aligned with it. The body must be aligned with it. The mind must be aligned with it. And motivations that are contrary to the action speak about a genuine disintegration in the heart of a person. That's what Jesus cares about. He doesn't care about just some cheap handout. He doesn't care about outward shows of righteousness, although, yes, that's a good thing. He cares about the whole person. What might our motivations be for giving generously today? I could tell you what some of mine are. I might do something or you know, do a favor for someone or do a kind act for somebody else simply because I want them to like me. People pleaser. And just the fact that I'm helping them with something I know will make them appreciate me and I want to be appreciated. Perhaps I want to be accepted. Perhaps someone is in a moment of need and it's as simple as that. I want that person to like me. I want them to accept me. On the most extreme end of those motivations, it might even be something deeper. Maybe in giving or in practicing generosity, even in very good ways, I might even be trying to manipulate people to do something good for me later. Pay it forward. I might be trying to control the outcome, the situation. Playing people and playing the field, manipulating them in order to one day be there for me. That's a problem. Donald Miller once said, uh, manipulative people are among the most lonely people in the world. The second most lonely are those that are being manipulated. Imagine a church filled with people that are doing a lot of righteous actions just to control the playing field. Might look really good on the outside, but we're dying on the inside. Jesus goes straight to the heart because he knows simple actions do not heal a group of people. This might even be really just a reflection. Might even be unconscious, but Might even be a reflection of a deeper desire to be accepted by God. I often find myself doing things that I didn't want to do because, at least in the back of my head, even though I know all the right answers the Bible says about the gospel and all that stuff, I still do things because it's a religious check mark. Checking off a box, I'm pleasing God, I'm pleasing others. Perhaps we even do stuff like this to control them. Well, God, if I'm generous, maybe you'll heal me. God, if I'm generous, maybe you'll make me happy. God, if I'm generous, maybe you'll give me a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a spouse, a puppy. Sometimes we manipulate other people and we control other people or maybe it's not even that bad. Maybe we just desire to be loved by other people from a deep-seated place of wanting to be accepted and loved by God. Perhaps we control other people because we're really just trying to control God. First place of your freedom in that is to recognize that God doesn't need your stuff. He doesn't need anything you have. You need him. And he wants you to have him. Paul said is, uh, or excuse me, yeah, Paul said in Acts chapter 17, is God served by human hands as though he needed anything? Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything? Rhetorical question, right? Answers, no. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your house. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your resources. He doesn't need anything. But look at what he says later. He wants you. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. In him we live and move and have our being. Can I paraphrase that for a second? God's saying, I don't need your stuff. I made you so that you would find me. I want you. And what you don't realize at this point is that you want me too. And I'm here for you to find me. And God pours himself out generously to all who trust him with their whole lives. And the grace of God is that he does, he's not generous towards people that will give him something back. He's generous to sinners. He shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. And he's generous in us. Most vividly, we see this generosity in the giving of Christ's life for our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You, in your spiritual emaciated nature, with no hope in the planet, the very persons that the Beatitudes are speaking about the disgruntled, the empty, the disappointed, the depressed, the needy, the spiritually bankrupt, the mourning, the disasters, the drama queens you are the ones who have been chosen to be made rich in Christ Jesus. That realization is what needs to change us. In Fong's testimony this morning, one line stood out to me above all the rest, and that was this, I had to learn to receive from God. Before I could do anything else, I had to learn to receive from God. Receive what? Everything. Everything. Even our salvation is called by him a gift of his grace. Ephesians 2, verse eight through nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. You don't have a good enough resume. You have not done enough righteous things. You are not impressive enough. You have done nothing to merit anything right from God. And that is the beauty of the gospel. It is due to his love and his love alone. He lavishes himself upon those who do not deserve it. Does that not change the way you think of him? Everyone else in your life will look for something in return. Everyone else and everything else in this life will look for an exchange in goods, will depend upon you to pay them back. God says, I freely give. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. The fact of the matter is that through faith in his death and resurrection, Christ does away with all of our sins, He makes us acceptable in the sight of the Father, acceptable, even desired by God. Dare I say, he even likes you. Some of you are like, yeah, I know God loves me. That's such a spiritual term. He probably doesn't like me. He likes you. Prophet uh, Zephaniah tells us, over God's people, he sings over them songs of deliverance and he quiets their hearts with love sings over you, sings. However, through faith in his life, that's faith in his death and resurrection, but faith in his life, people who have been forgiven and have said, I want, I want to live like Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. Through faith in his life, we too can learn to live in the rhythms of generosity that spring from the heart of the Father. You say, why would I want to do that? To live in a place where you're not in need. You're not in need of stuff. The thing that the city of Santa Barbara crowds around. You'd be uh, crowded and corralled by their stuff. All of a sudden discover that you don't need stuff anymore to be satisfied. Satisfied so full of God's abundant life that you now become a source of that overflow of life to other people. You have so much of God's life in you that you must share it with others. It's too much. Do you wanna live like that? In order to be in that place, as Jesus has been saying from day one, our heart has to be changed. If you go out from this place not knowing Christ yourself and you say okay I'm going to do some good things I'm going to give to this poor person I'm going to help that person on this street corner I'm going to do something for a nonprofit I'm going to be active I'm going to give of myself you're going to burn out in spiritual religiosity where this kingdom type of life comes from is a heart that has been born again to see its value and vision when you see Christ in such a way that you're like oh yes how could it be any other way? That is so entrancing, the way of Jesus. That is so perfect. That is so mind-blowing. That is so alluring to my heart. That, is, that makes so sense to me right now that I am willing, as the parable goes, to get rid of anything that I have. I am willing to sell all that I have for that treasure. Or as Paul says in Philippians, I have this and I have that and I've eaten that and I've not eaten for a while and I've been beaten and I have I have a pedigree and I was born from this family and I've been on the street and I've suffered everything from this side to that side, poor, rich, hungry, starving, uh, 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 filled with food, filled with benefits, filled with comfort. I've seen it all, but I have discovered the secret of my contentment and the secret is, Philippians chapter four, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's where this stuff comes from. The person whose heart has been made alive to Jesus Christ who can say to Jesus, yes, you call me to bear the cross, I will bear the cross. Because everything else is by comparison such a deep loss. I will gladly bear that cross for you. When that happens in your heart, then we start positioning and realigning our body or our behaviors, our actions, our automatic responses, aligning those things through what we have been referring to as spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. It's when all of the person is working together. When your heart desires the things of God, but your body is also obeying. Your heart is going this direction, your body is serving the heart, your mind is being renewed to those things, your emotions are captivated by those things, it's when the whole person is going in the same direction that you begin to experience the deepness of the abundant life in Christ. Dallas Willard. Putting it this way, saying, a discipline for the spiritual life is when the dust of history is blown away. Nothing but an active undertaking to bring us into more effective cooperation with Christ and his kingdom. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna take from the text in front of us three brief practices to think about going throughout the day. Two of them are super easy. One is the practice of fellowship. Without fellowship with other people in the body of Christ, you don't know what their needs are and they don't know what yours are. The second one is the discipline of generosity. That's the obvious one, right? Practicing letting go of things that are yours, not just finances, although it includes that, but your, your time, your resources, your giftings, all that you can think of, Letting go of that to bless other people. The third is secrecy. And this is what Jesus is getting at when he says in verse 3 When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is something that we do. We were talking about this last week where there's the disciplines can be thought of in two ways disciplines or practices of abstinence and Practices of engagement. We abstain from certain things in order to engage in other things. This is a practice of abstinence. We abstain to some degree and for some time from the satisfaction of what we generally regard as normal and legitimate desires. So it doesn't mean that you can't ever let someone know that you're doing something good. Jesus just said a while ago, let your... uh, Let your light shine so that people can see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is just saying there are gonna be times where you will do things in secret to grow yourself in the things of Christ. It's almost like fasting, which we'll talk about. We fast from something good in order to teach our bodies to crave something better. In this case, we part with our belongings to enter into the joy of kingdom generosity. Like Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. We're we're testing him in that, and we're saying, how so? Show me. But we also part with our desire to be recognized through acts of secrecy in order to gain a better reward. And this is the thing I want to end on right now. Reward is a weird concept, right? Think of reward as a wage that you get for doing a job. We don't like to carry that into our spirituality. But reward in this context is just the same thing that Jesus was speaking about in the Beatitudes when he's referring to the blessed life, the experience of the Beatitudes. The reward in this case is simply entering into the abundant life of God and unleashing it onto everybody around you. Saying, do you want to live that way? Let me change your heart and here's how you can practice it. If you were to do this from a heart that has been set free to do so, you will find over time that you will slowly, little by little, start to get freed from the desire, the crippling desire to please people around you. You'll start to notice that you less and less want to manage what other people think about you. And you will start to notice a little more ease in living out of your heart. We, uh, you know, by giving away our possessions, when I give away something that's mine, I am training myself to love people more than my possessions. When I give my stuff away in secret, I'm training myself away from the need to be recognized by people. So when we do these practices, we are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being freed from love of our possessions and love of of recognition. In that way, we experience uh, uh, the kingdom of God and this kingdom life, that is the good life, to live free. But before any of this happens, we have to learn by faith to receive from God's love. Can you imagine what a church would look like when the critical mass of its community is living this way, free? Can you imagine what a city would look like If it's churches, we're modeling that to them. On your way in here, you got a little token. This is probably something, and if you didn't, you can grab one on the way out on the stand. This is just our way of helping um, this to stay with us throughout the week. We'll probably be doing something like this every week for the next 16 weeks. Something to ponder and meditate on and think about. We all know that as soon as you leave and go to lunch, you're gonna forget everything I say. That's okay, I forget everything I say too. It happens. So I want you to bring this with you. Not something to do religiously, but something to think about. That first verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 8, you probably got it as you were going through the door and you're like, oh great, this is gonna be a tithing message. This is not about tithing. This is about the generosity of God in your heart to people who are needy. And I want you specifically to think about this line in 2 Corinthians. God will generously provide all you need. So here's what I want you to do. On the back, you'll see reflections and practices. I want you to go out this week reflecting on what God has done for you. I want you to renew your mind and get your mind to think about all God has done for you and all God has given for you and give him glory and give him thanks and worship him for that. As you begin to renew your mind, you'll start to notice your heart starting to change. When you're in that place, start to ask God for an opportunity to give to someone that you know in need. It could be anybody. It could be your mom. It could be your brother. It could be someone uh, in your neighborhood, it could be someone in your home group, it could be someone uh, you know, that you meet at the grocery store, it could be uh, anybody. Ask the Lord, Lord, give me an opportunity this week to give to someone in need, and when that person comes, and God will give you somebody. Try doing it in such a way that they have no idea that it was you. Just try it. We said last week, we're gonna at least try to do everything that Jesus says in the next couple months. Just try it. And as you do, pay close attention to the inner attitude of your heart and see if anything happens or changes. I, I charge and dare you today to take Christ at his word that even in his most difficult statements, he does things because he wants to change the world. And he changes the world by changing people like you and me. See if you are not changed by entering into this kingdom life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask right now that as we sing that even now as our minds are probably just thinking about giving and generosity and helping people, the poor and all of those things that we've spoken of, you just want most of us to go back to our first love. I imagine there are hundreds of people in this room who you are trying to say, hey, stop trying to do stuff right now. And just look at me. People who feel rejected and lonely and unloved and unaccepted. I pray, God, that today you would bring our minds back from what we spoke about to that sweet spot in the gospel. we are more sinful than we could imagine. We are more loved by God than we dare think. And I pray that as we sing about your love, love of Christ and the Father, you would start to melt our hearts. Or the last thing we want is to leave this building trying to do religious practices for show. We want to leave this place changed. We want to tap into the power of Christ's resurrection. And we want to unleash it across the coastlands in our wonderful city in Santa Barbara. So God, we ask that today you would wash us with your love. Pray for the lives of the enemy that are curled up in the back of our heads to be swept away by the swell of your forgiving love and grace. Pray for loneliness to be swept up by the arms of the Father. Pray for brokenness to be healed by the loving touch of our Savior. Pray for our inadequacies, our sense of powerlessness, our feelings of rejection, our poverty, spiritual and physical. To be swept up by this overarching truth that for some reason, God loves us sinners. And I pray that that would cause us to draw close to you today and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.